So Christ, Christ is here. And I wonder if we stop to pause to think about that reality of our Savior's presence among us. How that could affect our hearts as we now approach his word. And so um, let's pray to him and ask his Holy Spirit, which lives in us, to do something by and through his word so that we not only would personally change, but corporately would change. And God's redemptive mission for the world would see its fulfillment. It starts here. that you would be honored this morning, Lord. This is no ordinary gathering. Help us to see that and meet us. We're your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was watching a documentary this week. Uh, I was of, of, of one of my uh, favorite preachers. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. They, they did an interview with Sinclair. He's an outstanding preacher. If you've never watched him preach before or heard, heard him uh, preach, when he gets excited, he has this Scottish accent and he rolls his tongue. Uh, it'll give you goosebumps if you listen. Anyways, uh, they did this interview with Sinclair to um, come up with uh, Sinclair's perspective on and for um, the condition of the church to thrive. Sinclair was sharing his perspective on the status of the Church of Scotland. Uh, The film uh, toured the city, one of the major cities in Scotland called Aberdeen. It's where Sinclair attended a university. And uh, the city is actually filled with tons of churches, these great, big, marvelous, grand, outstanding stone, concrete building structures with stained glass windows, cathedrals, uh, probably back in the day, after all those things were initially built, it probably looked something similar to a modern day Christian um, Athens, but, but, but Sinclair had shared in the interview how over time the city uh, had changed. Uh, when he was there as a student, one of the things that he began to notice was that those churches had very large congregations, but he said that the telltale time sign of where they were spiritually was that their annual giving was published and that it was appalling. He said this, and I quote, this is a city where the influence of John Knox had reached at a time of the Reformation But in the previous 200 years, maybe 100 years before I became a student in the city, the rot had set in, which was the influence of the enlightenment and ultimately the rejection of the scriptures and the gospel at large. And with the result that those buildings which once looked glorious and magnificent, now in today's age had become transformed into nightclubs cafes, 
and upscale apartment buildings because the gospel had vanished internally in those buildings. The documentary started off with these outstanding words. I, I had to quote them. And I quote, when the church tries to reach the world by being as progressive as the world or imitating the world, then it is not long before it ends up as broken as the world. And then there was a scene change in the documentary to this one pastor who decided to plant a church in Aberdeen in 2011. Excuse me. That pastor talked about how it was starting a church in such a godless city. They started with a small group of people a meek and mild congregation, but through the preaching of the word, he, he realized that soon, quickly, that they needed a church to grow in because the small little rentable facilities that they were renting as a church weren't cutting it any longer. And so he described the initial years of the church plant, how God did many things and, and bore much fruit from the congregation, but one of the most glorious things that he saw from that small, little, meek and mild congregation was their generosity to the local church. And so they, they saw one of those great cathedrals and began to pray. And that small little meek congregation gathered their funds together and prayed and asked God for a church. And they were able to purchase a church outright. And so the pastor and his congregation moved into the church. The pastor was thinking about the work of revitalization. He went up into the church attic, and then he stumbled upon a picture frame that had all the different pastors from throughout church history that pastored specific congregations in that local church. And he said that his prayer now is, Lord, do it again. His prayer was that he would see a church thrive a biblical church, a Christ-centered church, a reformed church that's committed to the exaltation of Christ or the preaching, the supremacy of his word, that he longed to see that church bear fruit and for that church to see a day where the gospel radiated beautifully to transform its people and its city. And then he said this, he said, um, in this work of revitalization, you could drop a pen from where this whole entire work is centralized. He said, it's from, it's from the pulpit. Meaning that the main method of revitalization for this man in that godless city with a gospel charge was for him to keep the, the scriptures supreme. I know we're not in Aberdeen. I, um, I know that our story's a tad different. But did you know that there was a time when this church was forecasted to be the next perimeter? The same perimeter that has 8,000 people in it and over the past 45 years has planted over 35 churches. That the name of this church one time used to be called Perimeter East. And so as a leader, you might have noticed that over the, over the years of me being here, I keep talking about the story, and here's the deal. As God's appointed leader that you appointed me to, I can't stop talking about the story until I believe that God has brought us to a place where we see his heart and mission fulfilled. And so I desire, from the preaching of the word, from the pulpit, 
and the ministries that are affected by it. To see a church that bleeds and oozes the gospel, that loves discipleship, that prioritizes the means of grace, that knows reformed theology, not for the sake of knowing it, but enjoying and bringing pleasure and finding delight in God and his world mission that redeems the world. I long for a church whose families have been discipled to the point where they are able to know how to make disciples of their children and having the right perspective, what is the local church? A love for her. Because without the local church, there is no universal church, and the local church is the means by which God accomplishes his global mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so I believe that this is a holy desire, and thus it might very well be God's will. And so I invite you with me in the season, until we reach that season, to pray like that pastor, Lord, do it again. I want to invite you this morning to come and follow Jesus for the sake of his bride, the church, so that the kingdom of God would come and continue to advance and that you participating in this holy work would increasingly know and enjoy and find your only hope in living for Christ alone. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open to Exodus chapter 25. Following along with me, I've titled the sermon, God's Presence and Work Among His Church. And uh, there are three things I'd like to show us if you're taking notes. Number one is our heart for worship. Number two is our giving for the church to the church. And number three, Christ's promise of glory. Worship, giving, glory. We're going to begin our time together by reading the text up front, starting in Exodus chapter 25, reading through verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive for them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. This is God's word right now. We're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you our hearts for worship. We, um, you have, maybe, maybe you have noticed this, um, but that, uh, now in our, in our study, we have now picked up the pace of our study of this book of Exodus. Uh, just two weeks ago, we, we journeyed through the section following the Ten Commandments called the Book of the Covenant, and we covered the Book of the Covenant in just one week, which is kind of crazy. Uh, this week, I want to continue on with that far-reaching, faster pace, and here's why. 
It's because um, the next section of Exodus, this next section here, specifically chapters 25 through 31, though there are many elaborate subjects and descriptions and details involved, uh, overall, there is one overarching umbrella, umbrella and theme. And that theme is this. It's that God desires to be with his people so that they can worship him. And in this desire and gift, he requires for his people to pay proper and special attention to the way that he longs for that to happen. So some might hear this idea and think to themselves, well, here we go again with the egotistical God of the Old Testament who commands people um, with heavy rules to worship him. And, you know, in a certain sense, I, I get that. Uh, but what I want to do for us this morning through these chapters in three points is not just show us how, why that is not true, but even more how this here, God dwelling with us, is actually the best news in the world. The fact that God longs for, desires to be with his people, to give them an opportunity to worship and encounter his person. So this morning, we're going to cover chapters 25 through 27, but we're going to use the first nine verses of chapter 25 to do so. And in order to interpret what's happening, um, we have to remember the larger context of this story. What has happened so far in this book as we have studied it? Here's a brief overview. Chapters 1 through 12, we saw how God rescued his people from Israel and slavery in Egypt. Chapters 13 through 17, we saw how God protected and provided for Israel in the desert when they had nothing. Chapters 18 through 20, after that, we saw God personally reveal himself and speak to his people. Chapters 23 through 24, we saw how God came to the aid and rescue of his people and taught them how to live in relationship with him and also each other as a freed nation. And now here we are in chapter 25, and after having seen all of this amazing grace and aid, what God is now doing in this section of the book is preparing his people to get ready for his arrival. In other words, if you look at verse 8 there, at the mention of the sanctuary or tabernacle, what God was instructing his people to build for him was a dwelling place. And since God is no ordinary guest, but the creator and maker of the universe, there were to be special requirements met in the same but much greater way that you would prepare your own house for, for one of the most important, if not the most important guests that you can imagine. So these three chapters here, 25 through 27, tell of the perfection that God longs to dwell in. And so we have the Ark of the Covenant, we have the table of bread, we have the golden lampstand, the tabernacle itself, all with special instruction to tell of the splendor and glory and majesty of God and the good news that all of that now is about to be near to his people. Before we get into the book or exploring the, the major themes of the chapter, I just want to point out one thing to you here in this text before we get to any instructions or imperatives for them to actually follow the commands to build. This is what God says to Moses in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man's whose heart moves him. God is about to go on for 86 verses 
to elaborate on the instruction and command for his people to obey and build for him a house to hold his presence and worship him. But before he does, look what he says. Look for those people amongst my people whose heart has been moved by me. In other words, God is not looking for just anyone to participate in this work, but for the one whose heart has been affected by the gospel. One author named Douglas Stewart said these words. The overwhelming emphasis of this section of the story is on covenant worship. And what we have in this instruction is the first and foremost part, which is that God is looking for people who have a heart to worship, who long to know and experience him. Worship is the, is the most basic response of a true believer to the true God. It should begin immediately upon conversion and continue with regularity and consistency throughout the rest of life, for it will be continued in heaven forever. It is clear from the scripture that God enjoys being worshipped and expects his people to find joy in worshiping him. Find joy in worshiping him. God is looking for the person who does not see worship as a burden. God is looking for the person whom this topic and or idea of worship brings pleasure and delight to. God is looking for the person who is able to pray or say words like David did in the Psalms when he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. The table of bread described in this chapter was a symbol of God's nearness. The tabernacle itself was to be the housing place of God's glory. And if you look there in verse 22 of our chapter, you'll see that the Ark of the Covenant, where the word of God was placed, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments within it, it was stored there. And on top of that, right there in that point, in that place, at that specific location, God promised to meet with his people. Another commentator went on to say this. In the Old Covenant, everything associated with worship had to partake of proper symbolism so that the presence of God, the purity of God, the superiority of God, and the nature of his salvation could be communicated visually and at least sometimes even tactily to his people. The tabernacle, its furnishings and implements were expected to reflect the only intelligent God in his covenant relationship to his special and chosen people. And so here's the question. When God says to Moses, look for those who hearts have been moved by me, I mean, we just heard it, but, but what is the, the main moving factor? It's God. And it is actually that simple. But in order for us to understand that idea of God, we must remember the story that I outlined just about a minute ago. Who has God revealed himself to be thus far in his people's story? God has revealed himself to be mighty to save, merciful to deliver, 
gracious to forgive, loving to protect and provide, holy as seen on Mount Sinai in the pillar of fire and smoke and thunders and flashes of lightning with the mountain trembling. And so God in all of this revelation is now saying through the tabernacle, I'm going to take all of that and be with you. Moses, who in the people has been affected by me? Verse 2, the, the Hebrew actually literally reads, every man whose heart makes him vow. In other words, every man or woman who after having witnessed my holiness, experienced my grace, knows me personally, loves my love, and enjoys my saving power, treasures it. That's who I'm looking for. God desires for people whose heart have been moved by his person and presence. The good news of the gospel is that God longs to dwell with his people. And our hearts, our inner disposition, in light of that truth or fact, reveals our love or not our desire or not of him. And as recipients of the new covenant, we have seen God's desire to be with his people fulfilled. How did God do that? By sending Emmanuel. God condescends to his people and lives among them. Dies for them raises for them, and then after he ascends for them, pours out his very spirit, not just over them, but in them, so they can enjoy God. I'm asking you if you have been affected, if your life has been changed, if your heart has been pricked by the person of Christ. Um, because if it hasn't, there's no condemnation, but the rest of the sermon's going to be irrelevant. Because it all starts here. This text is for people whose hearts have been regenerated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ indeed came to us, to bring us near to God, to reconcile us to the Father, to enjoy his person, person to draw near to his throne to actually have God as the greatest gift of heaven. That's why the psalmist in chapter 73 nailed it when he said these words, whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire but you. But as for me, it's good to be near to God. Did you know that here on Sunday morning, at the, init at, at the beginning of worship, when I give the, the call to worship and read from the scriptures, we are invoking the presence of God. Um, we're entering into a place of holy, of holy, 
around God's throne where angels bow down in worship, here to enjoy the very gift of God. And I guess, I guess what breaks me, and I know that we're growing this and I'm so thankful, but I guess what breaks me as a pastor is that when I give the call to worship here on Sunday mornings and evoke God's spirit and pray, that, um, I don't know how else to say this, that, that many of us aren't here. I can't beg for that. That would be, um, I'm not going to beg anyone to come to God or to enjoy his presence. I'm just saying that when worship starts, it actually starts. And what a beautiful thing it would be to have a full house at the call to worship to experience the blessings of the new covenant initiated at church in the morning every Sunday. Did you know that there are Christians across the globe in closed gospel countries that risk their lives to go to church? That's like real. And yet, I just don't understand how someone then can contemplate the gift and then battle in their mind whether or not they're going to stay home or sleep in. Uh, maybe you can help me understand. I don't understand that. I don't understand how a Christian can only come to church once or twice a month. I don't understand that. What I'm saying is God is here. And so I'm not a Sabbatarian that is a legalist of the Sabbath to say you can't enjoy leisure or travel or family. You can do that, take a leisure, that's fine. But I say this to interrogate the heart, to observe the main trend of church attendance, which actually reveals your heart and understanding and longing for the presence of God, which is actually only available amongst his people. That's why individual Christianity doesn't work. That's why technological Christianity and worship over the live stream, it does its part, hopefully, to bring non-Christians into our church, but it does not do the part of allowing that person to partake of corporate worship. That's why the means of grace are only administered in the context of church rule and institution with elders to reside over the table. The Spirit of God in the New Testament leaves the building and goes into the people and the Spirit of God descends upon the people in a special way that is unaccessible in any other context besides Sunday morning worship. And so this text for us is forming and shaping. The gospel itself is forming and shaping our interpretation and understanding of, of Sunday morning worship. It is critical that we are here because when we are here, our souls will live. The, the, the leading Greek New Testament scholar, Bill Mounts, said these words, I wonder what the church would be like if the church actually understood that we together are the temple of God. So I guess that's the question. In light of worship, has your heart been moved by the work and gift of Christ? And this gift is knowing and enjoying encountering the Father. I say this as gently as I can. Would you, would you um, join us as we seek to honor God and revere his presence by coming to church on time? It would be a big blessing for everyone.
it would help us to honor the Lord in the way that he longs to be honored amongst his people. It's not law. It's a response of grace. Amen? We're going to move on here, and I'd like to show you the second point of this text, which is uh, our giving to the church. You might have noticed the repetition of the word contribution in this text. In verse 2, it says, um, God says, take from me a contribution of every man whose heart moves him. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say this. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Goat's hair and tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. The simple point that I want for us to realize from this text here is that God actually calls his people to give. To give to his temple in this context so that he might dwell there. And not just that he might dwell there, but for his dwelling place, you could see from these materials to look beautiful and grand, to, to symbolize and portray the one who this is for and who dwells there. And, and I don't think I need to dive too deep into historical context to, to help you realize the significance and the exclusivity of the materials that are mentioned here. They're still exclusive and grand in our day. Um, and maybe, I get this, maybe your heart is triggered. Maybe this is a trigger idea for you when it comes to the idea of giving or money in the church. I, I really have empathy for that. Um, I grew up in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, which is the name and claim it movement, which God exists for you. And um, I, I can remember when I was a young boy, a family member took me to a church service. <clears throat> and uh, it was a big church service. There were nearly a thousand people there. And uh, the preacher was preaching on money and giving. And he said, uh, come and give your money to God, because if you give your money to God, you will be blessed. And so after he taught on this, he made an invitation for everyone to come. And as I sat there, literally hundreds of people became walking down the aisles with uh, checks and dollar bills in their hands. And they placed on the stage, the stairs leading up to the pulpit, all this money so that the stage was in, you couldn't even see it. And then the deacons followed with big, literally big buckets. And they were filled to the brim. And I was a little kid. I, I really couldn't interpret what I was seeing because I was so young. But now I can interpret it, and that sucks. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad that you guys are lighthearted tonight. Thank you for helping me. Uh, and so I guess the question is, what do we do with this idea of money and or giving as it relates to the church? Let me start off by saying this. When it comes to giving and or handling money in the church, it must be Scripture alone, not the church not church tradition, or even the words of the preacher that must be our rule and authority. And so here we are. Our text is found in the context of the Old Covenant. This work that we are seeing here with this contribution is a voluntary act. But if you trace the, 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 the Old Covenant through the law, further, what you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 is that tithing becomes an obligatory practice. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we learn that tithing was in the form of a cash donation, and it was dropped weekly in a bucket to serve the temple and its different purposes. One man named R.C. Sproul, to clear things up, said this, Why did God institute tithing in the first place? In order to support the Levites, who had no tribal allocation of land, The Levites were set apart to take care of the spiritual and educational responsibilities of the nation and their work and physical necessities were paid off for by the tithe, Numbers chapter 18. Under the new covenant, the tithe continues to support the working up or the working of building up the people of God in the truth of God and reaching sinners with the gospel of grace. Christ works through churches, seminaries, parachurch organizations, missionaries, and many others to build and grow his kingdom. And so we're not in the old, the old covenant. We are in the, the new covenant. And just like the offering in this text was a voluntary act, an invitation to everyone but required of those whose hearts had been moved by God, we see a very similar theme as it relates to, to giving in the, in the context of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So simply put, here's what I want for us to know about giving. Christians in the New Testament are not under law to give. Uh, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law has been fulfilled. You don't need to give to stay in covenant relationship with God. But I ask, Um, Can you see um, the practical blessing of giving which contributes to the building up of the body of Christ, to the work of Christ and his church and Christian organizations? That the church is actually only able to exist and function um, at the expense of faithful giving. So we're not a secular organization with a product. We have nothing to sell. And so since we have nothing to sell, we're not making any profits from our lack of selling. And we're living by faith, depending on people who believe in the thing that we are by by faith seeking to advance, which is the kingdom of God. And so... um. Tithing is not law. We are not obligated to give in the same way that we are not obligated to do anything in our faith without our first our hearts first enjoying and believing in God's will and work. But having been given the second person of the Trinity, God himself, for our salvation, eternally, And then along with Christ, as the scriptures say, have been given an eternal inheritance, which is the fullness of God's kingdom, glory itself. And then after after having received that, having been given breath and life and clothes and a family and a job and all of your possessions and experiencing all this generosity, which is telltale proof of the generosity of God, And realizing that you don't have anything right now in your life that has not first been given to you. I think the appropriate question for the Christian is not, Christian, do you give? The question is, Christian, 
how could you not give? Having witnessed and experienced and been a recipient of eternal, everlasting grace. R.C. Sproul went on to say this, when we don't tithe, we reduce the, the ministry of Christ. One of the greatest barriers to expanding the kingdom of Christ in this world is financial. If we are expert managers and scrupulous stewards, even if we are those things, we cannot do $110 worth of ministry with $100. Christian ministry depends on Christian giving, and that giving always and everywhere limits the work. And so you know me, this is not typical for me to preach on. God has given us this passage, and we just go book by book, and we stop at each text. This is the topic that God has given us this morning. And um, the reason why I'm not ashamed to preach about money in the church is because the scriptures tell me to preach about it. Moses boldly asked for the best of the best amongst Israel, and so I ask you for your best and best and best, and that you would give, uh, not under compulsion or law, but that after having considered Christ, you would give cheerfully and generously. And here's a great philosophy of giving. If you want to be super biblical about it, uh, the right measure of tithing in the Old Testament, which is indeed an Old Testament term, would be 20%. You don't have to let that be your thing. But my philosophy rather is this, give till you feel it. Christ gave until he felt it. In fact, Christ laid his life down for the existence of the church and the progression of its mission. I want to talk to you about what's happening here at Parkview. We have seven people on staff, and hopefully by this week, when we hire a building maintenance man, we'll have um, eight people. Uh, that takes money. Um, we have four missionary families across the globe that we're seeking to, to love and empower and equip so they can bring the gospel to nations. Um, this building is close to 20,000 square foot. This church property is roughly seven acres. We have insurance policies, children and youth ministries. They cost a lot. Food curriculum, training safety. Our worship ministry is costly. We actually even pay to sing songs here on Sunday morning with a license. We have a cleaning service that enters into this building twice a week with a large team. Right now, we're trying to put a man through seminary to lead him into the ministry. In a year and a half, our plan is to hire an assistant pastor. And you know as well as I do that living in Lilburn and buying a house here is, is not a cheap thing. Last month, if you came to our congregational meeting, what you would have learned is that right now, without doing any of these things, we have $100,000 worth of needs, which doesn't count our church parking lot that has over three miles worth of cracks and it's going to cost us over $200,000 to repave. The seal that we put on a couple weeks, uh, years ago, is not really holding up. So hear this. I'm going to sound like the preacher that I once heard. I'm going to say a very, I'm going to say his words in a very similar way, but I'm going to mean something totally different. You ready? Here it is. If you give to God, you will be blessed. Take me in context now. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you give to God, I'm not promising that you'd become rich and I'm not promising that you will stay healthy. But what I am promising is God's promise, a twofold promise from faithful giving, which is you will never know a day that you will be without. And even more than that, 
you can participate in the holy work to seeing the true treasure of your heart, Jesus Christ exalted and magnified as his will is accomplished through his bride, the church. So, so tithing is an opportunity. You get to uh, invest in something that's going to reap eternal rewards, something that at the second coming you're going to see last forever. So none of your contributing is a contributing in vain that will die, but rather go on and go on and go on. And so your giving is for this generation of these people, but your giving is, is for, for the eternal covenant. There's so much work to be done here. There's so much work to be done here. So many more people to be cared for. So much more ways we can make this, this building beautiful. We got four events each year that house over a thousand people. That is costly. And, and, I, and I talked to our accountant this week after I did his yearly review and I said, Ed, what's the, what's the giving like? I don't see anyone who gives anything. I just see big numbers. He said, we're, we're doing okay. There's about four or five families that really hold the church together. Man, what an opportunity to be faithful and to support the work of the gospel. We want our presence to be on every part of the globe, every major continent. Don't you have a gospel vision with me? If you're a Christian, not if you're a visitor, you can contribute if you like, and I'm so thankful. But if you're a Christian and you belong to this church, would you consider um, uh, giving each week? You can do so in the back, or you could sign up for weekly giving. Um, this is for the glory of Christ. What an opportunity to bring him glory. That itself is a gospel gift. Amen? I like to close in our last point, which is Jesus' promise of glory. And so we've been moving and building upon this logic. God desire, desires to be worshipped. God desires this house to be contributed to. And then it all adds up to this. Jesus' promise For glory. The whole reason why God established the institution of the temple in the Old Testament, according to Hebrews, was for him to stir within the hearts of his people a longing for heaven. Redemptive, historical, biblical theology. Here it is. In the garden, what was there? It was God with man, cohabitating, co-dwelling in perfect harmony. In the garden, Adam and Eve. And what happened with Adam and Eve? They sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And what was the result of their sin? Um, excommunication of the garden, which resulted in not knowing his presence. This tabernacle here is the first time in the biblical story that God, God's presence literally comes to dwell with his people. It's a foretaste of glory. It's a foretaste of what we get in a greater way in the New Testament where Christ himself remedies our need, dies for our sin, reconciles us to God, gives us the Holy Spirit, and then draws us near to enjoy God's throne. And so it builds uh, Old Testament, uh, once presence, no presence, tabernacle, um, uh, uh, presence veiled, New Testament, Jesus Christ comes, unveils the presence of God, tears the veil so we get to have God, and then at Pentecost fills us with his Holy Spirit. For what purpose? 
so that we, as the tabernacle of God, the local church making up the universal church, can live together for Christ and advance his holy mission, adding up to what? The second coming, where the revelation says what? God will come again to dwell with us, his people. So what does this mean? It means that your life, your worship, your giving, your righteousness, it is painful. It's not health, wealth, prosperity. This is costly. Jesus says whoever loses his life will gain it. Whoever ever keeps his life will lose it. This is a costly life of following Jesus. It is hard. It includes suffering. But what is the gift of glory? That when he comes back for his church, the saints, his beautiful bride, he will unveil all of that work, how it added up to this, and how none of it was in vain. None of your suffering or striving for righteousness and giving and loving these people and loving this church is in vain because you will receive Christ and Christ will give you a great reward. I'll finish with Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 16. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each one of them according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in all of his kingdom. I don't know about you, but I want to see a faithful church. We had Night of the Arts on Friday. This place was packed. What am I? Actually, Shane Swayze took a picture and he said, look, what if our church looked like this on Sunday morning? That's what I envision. Would you come and give your life away to the church so that Christ can be glorified and you would be a recipient of the eternal reward, even on this side of heaven. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Um, it's worth it to live for you, and it's hard, and it comes with pain, and we don't do it perfectly. But we have a perfect Savior who washes and cleanses us from all of our sin and who guarantees eternal reward, which is inheriting God himself. I pray, I pray, I pray about those pictures I found in my office, Lord, of people breaking ground on this property. I pray that your will would be fully done and your kingdom would fully come to that which you have purpose for Parkview Church to fulfill. Make disciples, raise leaders, help us to see a day full of leaders. Bless our finances. Bless our Bible studies, our ministries. Help us to be contributors, not consumers. You gave your life. Oh God, I pray out of response we would give ours. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to read something.